listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in to see what the Lord has for us today. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for all that are here today, Lord. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you that you've saved us. Lord, I pray today as we walk through this passage about prayer, Lord, that that we can know and understand that we can be so close to you through this time of prayer. And Lord, that you are a God who answers prayer. Father, I pray as we sit down and listen to what Jesus has to say, Lord, I pray that the Spirit will work in us to mold and shape us to be more like Christ, but also to, to, Lord, to maybe to lay down some barriers that we have because we know that we humans have such a hard time praying. And uh, Lord, I just pray that this today would be a little bit of help in drawing close to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. George Mueller is a widely, widely considered one of the greatest men of prayer and faith since the days of the New Testament. He had four significant ministries over his lifetime. He was a preacher, and he did some orphanages, and he had some other ministries that he did during his time. He lived between like 1805 and 1898. So he had almost 100 years of ministry um, during that time. And during uh, a time in England when most orphans lived in miserable workhouses or in streets, you know, kind of like the idea of the Charles Dickens Oliver Twist, that, that's the, the way they lived then, he brought them in, he clothed them, he educated them, and then he sent them back out as adults. Mueller ministered and cared for 10,000 orphans during the time of his orphanages were open. But get this. He never once made the needs of his ministries known to anyone except to God in prayer. Only through his annual reports, after the fact, that people actually learned all the things that God did for him to make sure all these orphanages and all these other ministries was happening. But in particular, much of what was written in, in uh, George's uh, journals was about prayers in regards to these orphanages. Again, no one knew this after the fact. It wasn't like he was putting out a, a report and then, you know, people were responding to that. I'm sure once they heard the report in God's timing that, that it actually happened that way. But Mueller had over 50,000 specific, get that, 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayer in his journals. 30,000 of which he said were answered the same day or the same hour that he prayed them. God funneled over a half a billion dollars in today's money through his hands in answer to prayer. George Mueller had an intimate relationship with a God who created all things. If you are born again, believer in Christ sitting here today, you have the same access to the same God that George Mueller prayed for, prayed to each day. The same God who answered all those prayers. The the God who has done so much to be in a relationship with you. See, that's what he desires. Ever since the fall, he's done so many things just to be in relationship with us. That's pretty remarkable. He wants this daily, intimate relationship with his children. 
I would imagine that George Mueller in his day inspired people to pray. And what we find in our passage today as we open up our passage in, in Luke 11 is we see these disciples starting to pick up on this idea that, wait a minute, Jesus does all these miraculous things and Jesus did all these things and he's always starting with prayer each and every day. Maybe there's some kind of correlation, maybe like the light bulb came on and, and maybe just maybe there's, you know, a connection there. He's at the feet of the Father every morning. So they think to themselves, what is the secret? How can we have that relationship? So they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. We find this in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Of course, Jesus being a good teacher, he does just that. I want to look at what Jesus teaches us under three headings about prayer. He talks about our position before God when we pray. He talks about the priority of our prayers. And then he talks about the perseverance needed for answer to prayer. That's kind of as we unpack this passage, that's what we're going to see. Jesus begins teaching, um, his teaching, and he said to them, When you pray, say, Father. As I shared with those in, in breakfast today, like I got stuck there. I could have done the whole sermon right there, what that means. That we can actually go to the God that created everything, the God of the universe, and call him Father. That is just absolutely remarkable. So many of us are, uh, have had disjointed relationships with our fathers and, and maybe had good examples, great examples, bad examples, and somewhere in between. Because none of us are perfect, but he is perfect, and we get to call him Father. So Jesus first teaches them about their position. What you understand about your position before God will determine how you approach God. It's how you will approach Him. If you determine your position, that's with anybody or anybody, and whenever we, we engage with people in relationship, when you understand what position you have, it will determine how you actually engage with them. You have to settle in your mind that you have a family status. You are family. He is your father. You are his child. That you are not just a subject and he's the king. He is the king, but you're also a child of the king. You're not just a sheep and he's the shepherd, but you're a child and he's your father. Why is this so vital? Because the father-child relationship of of all the personal relationships that we have, the the father-child, the parent-child relationship is the most unconditional. Man, that is such good news. Even more unconditional than even your spouse, those of you that are married. Especially more than brother and sister because we know we just fight like cats and dogs anyway, right? get this. And, and I wrote this and this popped up and I don't even remember writing it. And it, it's just, I don't know, maybe it's because it, it's about to speak to somebody. And, and again, this is not me. This is just God. Cause I don't even remember when I was going over it again. This means that you are not living to gain his approval. You are not to live with the burden of letting him down because you can't. That's why we read Romans. Because when you were his enemy, whenever you were sinning, whenever you were separated from him, Christ died for you. So that means as as you look to your father, you can live in such a way that you are not trying to gain his approval. 
Because he's given you Christ's righteousness, so therefore you have his approval. And you are not to live with this burden that whatever you do on this side of heaven, that you're somehow going to let him down. Yes, we do sin, but if as long as we live in this posture of repentance, the daily thing that we have, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit on that in a little bit, as long as we live in that posture, then you're okay before your Father. Because it's not your righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. He is your Father, and He loves you unconditionally. It's exactly what we read in, in Romans 5, 8. But God shows His love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's look at it like this. If you are the President of the United States, or President of anything, really, who gets in to see you? Only the most accomplished people, the most powerful people, only the most important people. And all these people must do so by setting appointments and going through many advisors in order to gain your audience. So let me ask you this question, and there's a picture I have. Do you think this guy needed to make an appointment? The guy under the desk? Do you think he needed to make an appointment with dad to see him, even though dad was the president of the United States? Why? Because your relationship to your child isn't conditional. And your relationship with your heavenly father is not conditional other than you put your faith in Christ. You have put your faith in Christ. It doesn't matter about their performance or their accomplishments or how many PhDs they have. It just didn't matter at all. Jesus says, do you know your relationship with God? Is that loving? Is that intimate? Do you realize you're that cherished, that unconditionally loved? Do you know it? Do you live it out? Because living it out means that you, 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 can, you, not, you do not walk in guilt and shame anymore. You're, you're not worried and, and you're not controlled by what other people think of you because your Father in heaven thinks much of you. You must always remind yourself to start any talk with God with this position. You are his child. Jesus did it. He started every prayer, Father, Holy Father, or Abba Father, except for one time. And this is so crucial. crucial. This is so critical. Except for one time did he start, Father, Holy Father, Abba Father, and that was on the cross. He didn't say, my father. He didn't say, holy father. He didn't say, Abba, father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? What was happening there? He was being thrown out of the family. He was getting the thing we know deep down in our hearts we deserve, which is rejection. Jesus was being rejected for us. He was being thrown out of the family on our behalf. That simply means when we act in a way that that deserves to be thrown out, he already has done it for us. It's already happened. And you can go to him and say, Father, he took the punishment we deserved. So we can know he loves us that unconditionally. That he cherishes us that intimately. And that, that love is so unconditional. So we must settle in our hearts our position, a family basis. That's, that's how we approach God. 
we must remind ourselves of it all the time because we quickly forget. Now that we have established our position in prayer, we turn to our priority. And we see this in verses 2 through 4. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Here we have, uh, like we did with the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus just teaching in a different way. It's not exactly the same, but it's the same material taught in a different way. Not going to get into all the differences between those two accounts, but he's teaching the same thing. How are we to pray? The first priority is that God's name be hallowed, which means to make holy, to be held in reverence, to be made much of. Where the name of God is honored, God is honored. Hallowed be your name is a petition that pertains to God's reputation. It is a prayer that God would be known to be God in all his holiness. We offer this prayer, first of all, for ourselves, asking that our lives would demonstrate God's holiness as much as possible during our sanctification, because we are not perfect. But as we strive and as we point others to Christ, we are hallowing His name. He is to be made much of. This means to being careful not to dishonor God's name by using it in profane or casual ways. More than that, it means treating everything that pertains to God with complete seriousness. It means listening to what he says in his word. It means showing reverence for him in worship. It means living with the kind of personal purity that is in keeping with his character. We're made in his image. He saved us. He put the Holy Spirit in us. He's he's making a process out that we are being sanctified more and more. When we ask God to hallow his name, we are praying that we would enable us to obey the words of Peter when he said, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Regard him as holy. That's the first priority. The second priority is your kingdom come. Now, Jesus has been talking about this for a long time. If you guys have been with us in the, in the book of Luke, your, the, the kingdom's coming, the kingdom's coming. He sent out the 72. Tell them the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom of God is not a a nation state. It's not a system of government or a geographical region on any map. Very simply, God's kingdom is God's rule. His kingdom is seen as, as God's people and God's place under God's rule. It is the sovereign administration of his authority over creation, over his enemies, over the people who honor him as the king. Thus, the second petition is a prayer for the glory of God. It's the glory of God. To to pray for the kingdom is to pray for God's glorious rule to bring all things under its control. We pray this first of all for ourselves, asking God to reign in our hearts by faith. We've got to first put him on the throne of our hearts, on the throne of our lives. We ask God to help us do these things. His will be done. Not our will be done. We want to obey his royal commands and serve his royal will. We pray this for ourselves, our families, our neighbors, our nation, and ultimately the world. Anticipating the day when Jesus returns and fully brings his kingdom here. So once we've prayed for the holiness and the kingdom of our Father God, we are ready to pray for our own needs. The order is important. God comes first. 
giving the vertical priority over the horizontal. And these horizontal priorities can be summed up as daily provision, daily pardon, and daily protection. So now, I'm a good Baptist preacher. I made my alliteration quota for the whole year. That's about all you get from me, those of you know that are here week in and week out. Lots of peas going on today. Daily provision, daily pardon, daily protection. I do not have, again, the time to unpack each one of these. There's so much more in this passage to talk about specifically. But I do want you to notice that this is not a, a personal prayer. You ever notice that? This is not a personal prayer. This is a corporate prayer. This is a communal prayer for the church. Give us. Forgive us. For we, to us, lead us not. So as we're praying, we're praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ corporately. It's a communal prayer. It's a prayer of daily dependence on God. Even for those things that you think you have because of our hard work. Many times that we look at some of the things we've accomplished and some of the things we've done and, and, and we take ownership of it and say, yep, I did that because I did this. And we forget to stop and say, well, I didn't have the strength. I didn't have the breath in my lungs, excuse me, to do all those things unless God gave that to me. So it's about this daily dependence on him. It's a prayer of daily to present. And the error sometimes is to pray for our greeds, not our needs, right? <laughs> well, I know I fall into that a lot of times. It's like sometimes it's like I get praying and praying. And it's like, why, why is there no answer? Why is there no movement? Even if the answer is no. And then I start and stop and check my heart. It's like, okay, am I, am I praying for something I truly need or just something Joe really, 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 really wants bad? Now, some of those things that, that, that you really, really, really want bad also line up with God. Maybe you have a loved one who doesn't know the Lord yet. And you're praying really hard that, that, that he would soften their hearts and turn them to himself. That's a really good thing, right? So we just got to not slant into in praying our, our greeds, but actually pray our needs. First, our daily provision, provision. Next, our daily pardon. As much as he cares for our physical needs, he cares about our spiritual needs as well. After we ask God for our daily bread, we ask forgiveness for our sins. This is how we must always come to God, not confident of our own righteousness, but pleading for his mercy and grace. Forgive me, Lord. That's the posture. We, we already have a position. Position and posture is two different things. Right? You're in reverence of who he is. That's a, that's a posture. But your position is still his child. We need to acknowledge this every day. The confession of sin is an ongoing part of our relationship with God. Our sins are forgiven through Christ's death on the cross. Now, whenever we sin, as we continue to do, every single one of us, we can claim God's forgiveness in Jesus' name. As Martin Luther frequently and famously said, the whole Christian life is one of repentance. It is a posture of repentance. Repentance is not just the one prayer that you said way back then. It is a posture of repentance. It's an ongoing thing, everyday thing. And it's not a bad thing. Just because you repent doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing, actually, because that means that you're, you're taking yourself off the throne and you're putting him on there. And you say, Lord, I, I stumbled again. Please forgive me. And I can go to him in that. And it's a daily posture of repentance. This petition plainly acknowledges the sinfulness of sin. 
not just our own sin, but also the sins of others, right? Because we know that we live in a fallen world and, and people are, are kind of selfish because of, of the fall. So therefore, a lot of times we get hurt by other people. So not only do we need to go to God to ask forgiveness, but we also know, need to do the horizontal thing and forgive others. We must forgive others. When people do us wrong, they put themselves in our debt. The same is true of our own sin against God. It deserves to be punished. Do you see that's the thinking we must have when we have to forgive those who have hurt us so badly? What we got to be thinking is, hey, how much debt have I been forgiven? How much has God forgiven me? And how dare I hold that against others? That's the thinking. That's what we're praying. See, we're praying for his help to do all these things. We're praying for his help to do all these things. Because I know Joe in his flesh cannot do this. He can't do this. He needs the Spirit. He needs God's grace. We need to show the same mercy to other people as God has shown us. And one of the strongest proofs that we have received such forgiveness from our Father is our own commitment to forgiving others, no matter what they have done. It's simply a fact that children of God forgive their debtors. By forgiving our debtors, therefore, we show our family resemblance to our Father in heaven. We confess our sins because we keep on sinning, but it would be better if we did not sin at all, of course. Therefore, the Lord's Prayer ends with the, the prayer that God would lead us not into temptation, our daily protection. Right? We know it would be better if we just didn't sin at all, but that's not the case. So what are we praying? What are we asking? How for don't lead us into temptation. Whenever we are tempted, therefore, it is by the wicked allure of our own sinful desires. Right? James 4. It's one of the, the main passages that we talk about so many times. He says, it's not, you don't fight and quarrel because of the things outside of you. It's because of what's in your heart that is coming out. But God is able to protect us in the time of temptation. And even to keep us away from a, a particular uh, temptation entirely, which is what we are asking when we pray the Lord's Prayer. So we have seen our position before God when we pray, the priority of the prayer. Now let's turn, finally, to the perseverance needed for answer to prayer. Jesus teaches this through the par- a parable. If you read with me there, verses 5 through 8. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from, uh, from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I'll tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, this story is meant to be absurd. Whenever Jesus is introducing a parable with a statement or phrase like, which of you? It's probably like there's no good answer, right? We know that he is about to describe something that would never happen. The question is a a signal that the answer is no one, right? No one would do that. Which of you? No one would do that. No self-respecting member of the covenant community would refuse to help a neighbor in need. See, it's like an absurd parable that he's talking about. To see the absurdity of it all, it helps to know the cultural context. 
See, in biblical times, hospitality was a sacred duty. Like, it wasn't an option. Like, you know, we receive people and sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that they have something to drink. And, we're, you know, a lot of times we just say, hey, make it, it's my home is your home. You, you do whatever. But not back in then. Back then, you had certain things you did when someone showed up at your doorstep. It was a sacred duty. It was, it was built into, into their culture, and this is how they did things. When a guest arrived, especially a friend, the host had a holy obligation to provide a bountiful meal. So here the guest came up at midnight, knocking, you know, they, they showed up this guy's house. He has nothing. The bread's gone. There's no mini mart. There's no 7-Eleven or sheets to go to. What is he going to do? So he goes to his neighbor. Hey, will you give me some bread? And the neighbor's like, I'm in bed. You know, this is usually a one-room house, sometimes a two-room house, and usually just one bed, and everyone's sleeping, and he's like, I got my kids with me, we're in bed, I'm not giving, getting up to give you some bread. So when the friend arrived at midnight, he found himself unable to meet the high demands of biblical hospitality. So he went to his neighbor. He had one option to go, to his neighbor. And what he did is he made a reasonable request in an unreasonable hour. It's midnight. Right? It's reasonable to go to your neighbor and say, hey, can I borrow a cup of sugar or some bread or whatever you might need, especially if you know that neighbor, which back in then they would know their neighbors well, really well. So this is just an, a reasonable request and an unreasonable hour. His neighbor was already in bed. Again, as I said, his, his whole family sleeping. Just about the last thing the man wanted right, to do is to get up and get this man some bread. So what did he do? He told his neighbor no in four different ways. Like it was, he just said no four different ways. He said, do not bother me. The door's now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Eventually the man in bed realized to his annoyance that it would be easier just to give up and give the man what he wanted. So with a sigh of exasperation, he rolled out of bed and gave his neighbor what he needed. Being careful not to step on his children, of course. He did not do it for the love or friendship, but simply because he wanted to be left alone. He did it because his neighbor had the audacity to come at midnight and keep asking until he got what he wanted. We should come to God with the same kind of bold perseverance when we pray. This bold perseverance is found in in the word, in the ESV translated impudence, footnoted as persistence. To be impudent is to be shamelessly presumptuous. We all know the type. Someone who does not particularly care what the neighbor thinks and who has the the sheer audacity to come right out and ask for something that no one else would dare to ask for. We all know people. We all have people like that in our lives. They're just going to ask it and you're like, "Mm, I probably wouldn't have done that, but no problem. This then is how we should pray. Not timidly timidly dropping God hints about what we need, but boldly, even shamelessly presenting our petition before God. And then continuing to pray about them until we get an answer. Sometimes the answer is no. But we should pray until we get an answer. Now we can't make the mistake by taking the parable too far. And think that Jesus is telling us that God is a grumpy man in bed. (laughs) We can't take it that far. Don't, don't go that far with it. No, we see the next that, that Jesus said that God is ready and willing to help us. Riken says this, prayer is not a way of getting God to do what we want or 
of persuading him to do something that he does not want to do. But prayer is an audaciously bold request for, for God to do what he has promised to do. There are so many promises in the Bible that he's promised that will happen. Jesus then applies the parable with some of the most encouraging words in the Bible. And this is verses 9 and 10. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is what he's teaching us to do. Ask, seek, knock. This is what the perseverance looks like. These three verbs are, are continually happening. You know, it's like it says, go and make disciples in Matthew 28. It says, as you go, make disciples. It's continually happening. So really what he's saying is, it's asking, seeking, knocking. It's a continual thing. This is how we go to him in prayer. We go to him and go to him and go to him. Jesus is not just telling us how to come to God in the first place, but how to go to him again and again. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And to show just how generous God is, Jesus adds these two parables, which in their absurdity makes his point. Look at me in verses 11 and 12. What father among you, if, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? After making this point, Jesus then argues from the lesser to the greater, and he says this in verse 13. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Yes, we may think Jesus is being hard on earthly fathers, calling them evil, but he's just speaking to our depravity because of the fall. Jesus is making a comparison for all of our shortcomings, most of us fathers know what, if, what, um, what our children need. And we try our best to, f- to fulfill their needs. When they ask for something, we listen to what they're saying. We provide what they truly need. Sometimes it's not their greeds. <laughs> and if we're able, we do much more than that. The point is that if even earthly fathers know to give good gifts, we can trust our perfect heavenly father to give us the best gifts of all. Knowing that we can count on God's fatherly care, giving us confidence when we pray. Jesus has taught us our position before God when we pray, the priority of our prayer, the perseverance needed for answer to prayer. And here at the very end, Jesus makes this incredible promise. He promises when he asks, He will give us, when we ask, He will give us the Holy Spirit. The climax of the passage is this promise. Of all the gifts that God could possibly give us, none is greater than the gift of God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. If we do not believe this, it is only because we do not know the greatness of the Spirit's person or the scope of the Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit is a person, it's not a force. It's not an it. He's not a feeling. He is a person and he's God. Therefore, when the Son promises that the Father will send us the Spirit, he is promising that God himself will live within us. That God himself is dwelling in us as we have been born again. So many times in so much of our life, we we live quenching that Spirit. What will the Spirit do in us? 
Oh, there's some great promises. He will reveal the truth of God through the teaching of Scripture, which He Himself first revealed. He will give us the conviction of sin, granting us the gift of repentance. He will persuade us of the truth of the gospel, working in us the gift of faith. By faith, He will unite us to Jesus Christ. So it is only through the Spirit we receive the blessings of salvation, of justification, of sanctification, and of adoption. That's not all. It's only the beginning. The Spirit will win us the victory over sin. The Spirit will equip us with gifts for ministry. The Spirit will grow in us the fruit of godliness. The Spirit will assure us that we are the children of God. And so many times we need that at church. We need that reminder. One day the Spirit will raise us from the dead, just as He raised Jesus from the dead. And by His transforming grace, He will change us into glory. We will be like Him. In short, to have the Holy Spirit is to have everything God has to give us. Have you asked the Father for the gift of the Spirit in the name of the Son? See, God is ready and willing to do the same thing for you because this is a request Jesus is guaranteed that the Father will answer. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for these reminders as you taught us how we should pray, Lord, that our position before you is as children of God. As your children. Lord, you've given us the priorities to make much of you, to give glory to you. Lord, you've asked... taught us that we should ask for our provision. Ask for our pardon. Lord, and then you give us this wonderful promise. If we ask for the Spirit, He will give it to us. Not because of how good we are, but because of what Christ has done on the cross. He has bridged the gap between us and God. Lord, I pray if anyone's here today, Lord, I just pray that you have worked in their hearts and as one of the things that the Spirit does, they see that they are truly separated from you. Lord, I pray that you would change that heart so they may turn to you in faith and trust in Christ today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.